Hello, again. Thanks for tuning in. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. And if you're a repeat listener, we're glad to have you back. As you know, my name is Jeff Kwame. I'm the host and the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. And on behalf of the board of directors and the staff at that organization, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Scope of Practice is sponsored by our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut. Mountainside provides individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the state. To be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission, its residential program is one of three in the country that, that has earned dual accreditation as well as a 3.7 level of care certification from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. This distinction recognizes its outcomes-driven treatment programming, 24-7 nursing care, and comprehensive psychiatric services. Learn more about my friends at Mountainside at mountainside.com. Research has shown that music improves a body's immune system functions, increases dopamine production, lowers stress by reducing a body's cortisol production, and one study even shows that music was more effective than prescription medication in reducing situationally-based anxiety. Additionally, the American Psychological Association recognizes that music is an effective form of therapy. There's even a positive correlation between the use of music and client motivation to fully engage in a treatment program. Music can be a significant asset to prevention, treatment, and recovery processes. Kathy Moser is the founder and director of Music for Recovery, an award-winning songwriter and teaching artist with over 20 years of experience in the mental health field. She founded Music for Recovery in 2009 in order to help people use music to develop recovery skills. She has served as faculty at the Rutgers Summer School of Addiction Studies, the Rutgers Arts Prevention Program, has been my colleague, although I didn't even know it, at the New England Institute of Addiction Studies, an arts and culture writer for Recovery Campus Magazine, and she has hosted a weekly podcast on creativity and recovery for City of Angels Recovery Radio. A 2016 study of music for recovery by the Recovery Research Institute at prestigious Harvard Medical School found that her work helps to instill a sense of cohesion and hope and catharsis. In 2015, she became the music program director at Daytop, New Jersey. She greatly expanded the program, attracted over $100,000 in donation, national press coverage, and helped Daytop win an award of excellence in addiction treatment from the New Jersey Mental Health Association for their Music for Recovery program. Kathy holds certificates in arts and prevention, motivational interviewing, trauma-informed care, experiential therapy, psychodrama, and the nurtured heart approach, as well as a BS in music, business, and technology from NYU. She has given hundreds of songwriting workshops and concerts nationally, with over 700 songs created for these recovery workshops have been streamed over 46,000 times by clients post-treatment. Music for Recovery is currently under contract with Hackensack Meridian Health, Summit Oaks Hospital, and the Center for Great Expectations. Kathy is passionate about helping people through music, and her vision is that every treatment center will have a clinically integrated music program. Kathy, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Jeff, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here on Scope of Practice. Um, Just kind of to begin, as a person in long-term recovery, how did music aid your recovery process? 
Well, music has always been solace for me. It's always been a form of comfort for me. And songwriting is my problem solving tool. I don't understand actually how people who aren't songwriters solve problems when I'm boxed in by life. I sit down and write a song and often like in the third verse, I kind of figure out my way through. I'd also like to answer if I might, how music at first aided my addiction because um, I'm here to smash the illusion that drugs and alcohol are beneficial to creativity. And in my experience, the people that introduced me to music also introduced me to drugs. And many of the musicians that I admired were open about their drug abuse. And I want to say that um, it's just part of my mission here. You know, so many people dying of addiction and recently so many young musicians like Little Peep and Juice World, who are so important to the people I serve, have died at the age of 21. And how many people are in try something because a musician that they admired mentioned it, you know? So my story might have been really different if I... Um, if the musicians that I admired and knew had lived a healthier lifestyle. So um, it's been super important also just in terms of um, uh, expressing my deep feelings. I just want to say in recovery, the very first song I wrote in recovery, I actually brought my guitar here because like, why not? Right. Um, (laughs) I wrote this song. I'm just going to play like 10 seconds of it or so it, the first 30 days of my recovery. And I wrote, um, I am who I am. Even if you don't understand, I know what I know. Even if you tell me it's not so, I feel what I feel. You cannot tell me what is real, cause I know who I am. And I suggest that you get used to it. And that song was like, in the first 30 days of not doing drugs, right? I was able to take a stand for myself, in myself. And, and I had then like a, something I could refer back to, you know? Um, I wrote another song in very early recovery um, called If I Could Love, because like many people, you know, I have a trauma history. Stuff happened around me and to me when I was a kid that should not have, that I had never talked about at all. Mm-hmm. And when I came out of the fog of my addiction, I felt unlovable. I felt unfixable. I felt unfixable. and um, I wrote a song called If I Could Love with this white hot rage that I didn't even know was in me. You know, I've been using to keep that rage down all that time. And when that song came out, it was like, it was so freeing, you know, to be able to tell the truth about the stuff that had happened. So um, that's kind of how it's been for me. As somebody with a trauma history myself and, and mine kind of manifested itself, not in a substance use disorder, but in, in, um, a psychiatric disorder of, of different kinds, depending on which doctor I went to at the time. Um, but music was a way to kind of help me through the struggles of that. And I'm I'm not someone who can write music, and I, I have a pretty good ear, but that's about it. And I needed something that that to tell me that what I was feeling was normal. And it's funny with my suicidal ideations and things. I listened to suicidal tendencies from L.A. who sang about young people and suicide and people didn't understand how that was helpful to me, but it made me feel part of a community, a community that I fit in with. And I think music does that for all of us. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the foundations of recovery is to be able to tell your truth to someone. And sometimes if you just hear it in a song, I mean, for me as an artist, that can be the most amazing thing is to have a bad day or be in a bad spot, write a song about it, and then perform that song and be of service to someone else. 
like that's the whole circle of it, you know, and it, it definitely makes us feel more connected and, and normalized and, and human. I think that ability to, to share emotion or to express it, um, again, forms that community of people that we don't even know of, of who just say, yeah, this does something for me. And that's why it's important to me. Yeah. If I, get, if I see a heavy metal concert, I'm so glad that those people are getting that all out in the mosh pit. I would totally rather they got it out in the mosh pit than at work, you know? You know, I got a chance to meet the lead singer of, of Suicidal Tendencies a couple of times in conversations with him. He's just the guy that's my age who struggled mm-hmm. with these things at an adolescent and older. And I said, people are saying, well, that's, it doesn't feel that's dangerous to listen to that. It's, in, it's not encouraging anything to me. It's just saying something about what people are experiencing. Um, you mentioned a study by Dr. John Kelly, who's very well known as a very well-respected researcher in our field at, at the Recovery Research Institute up in Boston, where your work was found to instill hope it helped with group cohesion. It also has that cathartic effect. Can you talk a bit about the role music plays in these outcomes? Absolutely. I, first of all, I'd like to say we're so honored and grateful that Dr. John Kelly did that work um, with us. He's also a really gifted songwriter, FYI. Um, so in terms, of instill, uh, in terms of instilling hope, you know, we tell people that they're going to be happy, joyous, and free. But early recovery is actually painful, awkward, and exhausting. And so participating in music activities can give people a felt sense of joy. They can feel that it's going to be possible to be happy in recovery. And the evaluations we do for every group, we see over and over again that people say they didn't think they could have this much fun clean and sober. Um, And so in terms of building group cohesion, you know, treatment's a group process and we're people that would not normally mix as one of the books we use says. But the evidence shows that when people sing together, they bioregulate together, which is that the heartbeat and breathing synchronize. And studies show that people have a greater sense of empathy and cohesion after singing together, which, of course, is why we do it at church and football games and all different kinds of places. Um, We again see in the evaluations that people really appreciate having an activity that they can do together. And the last thing I want to say about cohesion is it tends to build respect in the group because there's often hidden talents that show up. And also people are taking risks out of their comfort zone and being supported. So that really brings the group together. In terms of cathartic aspect, we have had so many instances, Jeff, where people have said something or expressed something or revealed something in songwriting that they have not told their therapist yet. For example, I worked with a young girl named Alex who had lost her best friend. Her best friend was murdered when she was 16 and they didn't find her. They couldn't, they didn't find the body for like, 10 months. In that time, Alex started doing heroin. And shortly after they found her friend, she and a bunch of friends OD'd in a car. And Alex woke up and one of the other kids did, but one of the other kids didn't. So she lost two friends and she would not talk about that to anyone. Thank you very much. And she did not want to be here, period. And by bringing her into the studio and starting with DJing and then making a beat and then she's just hanging around, she wrote like five pages of lyrics about what she had been through that I was then able to, you know, share with her therapist with her permission. Um, so people really um, say things. And also we know just from, you know, all the other studies that writing, the physical act of writing helps the brain process in a way that talking doesn't. And one thing that Dr. John Kelly said was that, you know, songwriting can bypass some of the defenses of the brain. So that's what uh, hope, uh, catharsis and uh, cohesion comes out of our work. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about art therapy of, of any kind 
it really allows people to express things that they can't necessarily say or don't know how to say. And I think that the songwriting aspect, uh, it changes the, the the game a little bit on how they're expressing things. And it's, you can see the power in it. Oh, absolutely. You know, you had mentioned uh, about having fun without drugs. And, and we go to, uh, you know, Ricky Bird, who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, he released an album in 2015, uh, Clean Getaway, which his music talks about the positive side of recovery. And he really feels, uh, you know, at that time that his job was to show people that you can be sober and have fun. He says, look, I did it. Um, and it's, he's got a new album out that explores it even a little bit further. Um, what would you say, colloquially, your job is if his job is to be the recovery troubadour what's yours well first of all like shout out to ricky bird he's like a super lovely guy besides being a great musician um so and yeah definitely check out his new album i would say our job is to give people the experience that they can do more than they thought and that there's a trustable process for creating music and for creating recovery and we give people a hands-on experience that recovery skills make them successful for example slowing down and one of the things that we'll get into in our next session, we'll, we can touch on now, is you do this with groups of people in two hours. So a very compact amount of time. We have written hundreds of songs in two hours with groups of up to 40 people. So help me God. Yes, it's crazy. That's one of the things we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a fan of music of many styles and genres. It really depends on what's happening for me that day, what I'm going to listen to. Um, so I know the positive aspect, uh, effects that come from being a listener, uh, especially how it, it helps me sustain a positive life. What are the effects from a songwriter and performer's perspective? They must be very different. Well, I think part of it is the uh, problem-solving tool. Uh, as I mentioned before, it helps me figure out life. And also, it's an act of service. I want to say that, in my opinion, performing is an act of service. That's why we give a performance. It's also the most healthy mentality for me to operate from. And the magic of the 12-step process, right, is that some of the worst things we've been through make us uniquely qualified to help others. So in performing, as I said earlier, taking a song that arose out of pain and using it to help someone else is kind of a sacred form of alchemy. Because happiness arises from being useful and being yourself. And another piece about music I want to say is that I heard this quote several times recently. It says, progress is happiness and happiness is progress. And I think about making music and, and becoming better at music is such a reliable form of happiness. The same way if you can lift five more pounds this week than you did last week, right? Or you can like run a little further or you're getting up a little early, like progress makes us happy. And I've been playing guitar for 48 years, right? It's a very small world of guitar. The neck is like about three inches wide and it's about 24 inches long. And there's new stuff in here all the time. And when the world feels so overwhelming right now, I can block out everything and just focus on doing one small thing. Like I'm learning this new technique of finger grabbing, which I'll try and demonstrate for you. So I just learned that in the last couple of weeks with my teacher and I spent, you know, and when the world is overwhelming, I know if I sit down and I do that 
and I focus on it and I repeat it and I do it slowly, I will get better no matter what. And you could take that to the bank. And to me, in a world of so much uncertainty, this is a constant I can count on. Just allowing myself to make gradual improvement, which by the way, is exactly what recovery is, right? It's just this gradual improvement. Like, was I slightly more honest? Did I get to work on time two of the four days this week? You know, just that small progress. So, and also, um, I do feel like I'm being used in the way that I'm supposed to be. I, I, I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing when I'm performing in a useful way. Yeah, the natural talent that you were given, using that for good. Mm-hmm. Yes, use your powers for good. So hopefully they can find that in themselves if they have it, or find something else within themselves if it's not a musical ability. Absolutely. As we see programming like music therapy really increasing in popularity, it's important to point out that it's not a new concept. It was first used in 1970, over 50 years ago. I'd like to say that I wasn't alive then, but I had been alive for a few years. Um, you know, what do you attribute the resurgence to? Um, well, first of all, I just want to be clear that what, what we do at Music for Recovery is not music therapy. I just want to be clear about that. We're, we're teaching artists, creating, uh, teaching people skills. Um, but I would also like to say that, like, it's longer than 50 years, right? If you go back through human history in all kinds of rituals, healing rituals, in all kinds of worship, in all kinds of things, um, you know, in the most important times in our life, death, graduations, birth, transitions of all kinds, we sing, right? So music has been giving us this for all of these times. And, you know, um, thinking of all the, all the, the um, sacred music, right? And the upliftingness of that music of all different kinds. Um, so I don't think it's even, I think it's older than 50 years, but in, in terms of addiction treatment, um, I think it's partly on due to the ongoing dedication of people like Ricky Bird and Woody Geisman at Right Turn and John McAndrews at, at Cumberland Heights and Recovery on Plugs. Um, a lot of people just out there and doing it. And I, maybe we're reaching a critical mass. Um, I think that would be it. Yeah. And, and also actually also thank you to people who've done, for example, equine therapy and it's shown to be super effective and people coming in and doing yoga and it's shown to be super effective. These experiential um, modalities because most people are doer learners. We live in a culture that teaches by reading, but most people learn by doing. And so if you can do it, you can learn it. Um, so I think that might be why it's becoming more popular. And I think especially adult learners are, are ones that really want to experience what's happening. Um, you can tell me a thousand times, but it let, if let you, I put my hands on it and, and you're helping me do what I have to do. That's how I learn. You know, music has been a part of great social movements for years and years. I mean, and just in recent history, think of We Shall Overcome with the civil rights movement. Um, and you look at all the great songs of the, the late 60s that kind of, of told the story of that culture, whether the anti-war culture and things and, and how it all moved along. And I think there's a recovery advocacy movement that's always changing. Bill White has talked about it, and recently he's talked about the new recovery advocacy. But music, why would not, you know, I can't see why music wouldn't be a part of that as well. And it is. It's, you know, with, with folks like Ricky Bird and a, a couple of members of Boston's Del Fuegos, who were one of my favorite bands back when I was a college kid and things that, it plays a big role in joining people and uniting, and we can share a message by singing together. I think that's important and, and should be said. I love this quote from Salvador Allende. It says, uh, you can't have a revolution without music. 
Um, and uh, I think he was a Chilean uh, president. And then, and Nelson Mandela said that without music, they would never overthrow apartheid. I don't know if you've seen the videos, but those people were dancing and singing in the streets for years. And many of them were not allowed to. Actually, a band that I had seen in, in the early 80s with Paul Simon, Ladies like Lady Smith, Black Mombasa, who backed them up, were afraid to even go home to South Africa because their music spoke out against apartheid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really is a big part. And to say that we're not in kind of a crisis mode, we're in a crisis mode in this field, in this industry, for a lot of different things, not just opioids, but the fighting of the stigma associated with having a substance use disorder or mental health disorder for that issue. Music helps overcome that. And I think it it it's the backbone or the backbeat, maybe, of what's going <laughs> to the rhythm section of our work. Right. Well, you know what? Like Eminem, right? Uh, so many people have referred, like, you ask people, like, what's a song that you love? And that song, I'm Not Afraid by Eminem, you know, which is on his recovery album. So absolutely. A funny story with one of the songs on, on Ricky Bird's first album, I mean, not first album, but first recovery album, Clean Getaway, that was written many years ago in the 60s by Paul Revere and the Raiders for Eric Burden and the Animals. The song uh, was Kicks. And the animals would not do that song because it spoke out against drugs. So Paul Revere oh, and the Raiders wow. did it themselves. Uh, oh, it just wow. shows where the culture was at that time. So it's, it's nice to kind of hear it um, brought to life again. Uh, Absolutely. In, in this time. You know, I did a little research in, in preparation for our conversation. Uh, I found some evidence that music is especially helpful for women and for adolescents the specific needs of each group often forgotten in conventional substance use disorder treatment. It really, to me, was especially fascinating that they found that adolescents use music and drugs for the same purpose, that that uh, reducing psychological distress. Uh, I just found that absolutely fascinating. Can you just talk about your experiences in working with uh, both women and adolescents? Absolutely. And I have like years of experience of doing this. I think that adolescents and women both really need to be heard. I think they need to be heard. And um, I'd like to say to all treatment providers, if you, if you treat people who are under the age of 35, including adolescents, and you're not using hip hop, you are missing out a great tool to help your clients. With the adolescents, it's, you got to meet them where they're at, right? And you got to listen to what they're listening to. And so I've done a lot of that. And, you know, like with the gang kids that I work with, I finally realized, like, so some of the qualities in gang culture are loyalty, right? Loyalty, like we have each other's backs. Uh, If I get fed, you get fed, you know, that like, I'm here to make sure everyone on the block is okay. That's my job. And I realized, like, after listening to it a while, a lot of these gang songs are, are love songs. They're love songs for their friends, you know? And, um, so I think, Sometimes, you know, that's not my initial impression, by the way. Um, I had to kind of listen. So I think with adolescents, being listened to, being having the music that they love be appreciated, and then being able to learn how to do it really um, is, you know, sets a ground of respect uh, for working with them. Also, adolescents, many of them are suffering from anxiety and attention deficit disorders. And the thing about learning music, especially making an instrument, playing, making sorry, making music, learning to play an instrument and dance, they offer kinesthetic ways to learn things like slowing down, repetition, and breathing. And they give them a felt sense in their body 
um, that these things make them successful. Again, we're not telling them, teaching them, or showing them. We're giving them the experience that if I slow down, I am more successful. And success makes everybody feel better. So giving them low-risk, easy access points to make music builds their self-esteem. And for women, I'd like to say um, that being able to express themselves and give voice to their pain and their vision for themselves is really important. And many women come into recovery with a lack of respect and trust for other women. They're just not that into it. You can't, so many of them are like, I hang with the boys, you know? Um, And so doing group activities in music, first of all, just really helps people um, to open up and be vulnerable. And it also is an invitation back into the body, you know? So for many people, we've left the temple of the body, you know? Elvis has left the building. And um, I just did a six-week project uh, with the Center for Great Expectations where we did um, a talent show. And I had a woman who went from sitting at the table with her head down, and then she was like, I'm not going to sing. And then she was like, I'll sing, but I'm going to sit here with my eyes closed. Then she's like, I'll sit in the middle of the room where the microphone is, but I'm going to sit with my head down and my eyes closed. And then she's like, I'm going to stand up, but I'm going to stand up with my eyes closed. And I got to tell you, Jeff, like week number five, she like came up into her body, her shoulders went back, her head went up because we'd given her so much repetition and practice and baby steps. And she opened her eyes and it was like watching a flower bloom. It was just amazing. So those are some of the ways I think that it's helpful to women. Not that we've had so many beautiful experiences in all male environments too, but particularly for women and adolescents, I think it gives them a voice and a safe place. And it gives them and it gives them a chance to be powerful, to feel powerful. We know about the, the need for cohesion in the adolescent uh, culture. And, and I'm speaking generally, and I certainly don't mean to generalize everybody. But I, and when I was in social work school in the mid-90s, I remember reading and doing some, um, some work with feminist theory. And, and somebody up at Wellesley College, a woman had looked at how women work together in group. And when men are in group, they express their power in group by kind of shutting each other down and and I'm the one looking for a scapegoat. Women tend to express their power um, more relationally by forming relationships with others so that it's safer to express power, um, or at least this was what the study said in the mid-90s. And that cohesion, how music can build that to give the power back where society has said you're not supposed to have the power uh, is an amazing thing. That was, that was the thing, man. This woman just like, she just stepped into herself, you know, over time. You know, one of the things that, that I, I like about music and using music to help people in recovery and even in treatment environments is how it fits in so many different places. You can't say it only works here or it only works in this type of environment. You know, there's evidence based to support its effectiveness in conjunction with motivational interviewing, and it really works well with 12-step model interventions. What are some of the types of of facilities that you've gone in and and done your teaching and educating? Um, Well, currently we're working in an adult detox, which is my first, this is my first, like I guess I've been in the detox now for about, two years, I was really surprised at how well it's, we've had some of the most amazing groups in the detox. I didn't necessarily know that people will be feeling well enough. So we work in detox, we work in dual diagnosis, we work in psych units, we work in recovery units, work in the mommy and me program, we work in an adolescent unit, we've worked in halfway houses, we've worked in sober living environments, we've gone to recovery festivals and done songwriting workshops in tents. Um, so we've worked in a lot of different kinds of environments 
Um, yeah, and I, I, I'm a fan of single gender. I'm a fan of single gender programming because I've seen the men also become so much more vulnerable in that setting, um, in my opinion. But um, yeah, we've worked in a lot of different spaces and we do see it, um, uh, we do see it working in all those spaces. And some of those places are places where a client might be there five to seven days. Um, some of them are places where a client might be there a year. So if it's a place where someone's there for a short period of time and you're able to see some musical growth for lack of a better term, um, that's pretty exciting for someone, especially in a detox where people just don't feel well, can't wait to get out of there. But wow, what can happen is really an amazing thing. Well, with the songwriting, right, they can play their song when they go home. So we've had so many people that are in detox and they're not feeling well. And then they're like, hey, am I going to get royalties on this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to see that the humanity factor still remains, <laughs> no matter what struggles people go through. <laughs> but it shows a pride in ownership, right? They're like, hey, we're going to be on the top of the charts. And um, yeah. I know groups or, or places like the New England Institute of Addiction Studies, you said that you had done, had done a songwriting workshop there. And that's really a great environment. You know, I've taught there for many years, but I used to be a student. And I had mentioned in our prior conversations that I learned to juggle there. Right. And it was such a, you realize what a simple process it is, but you can always get better with practice and, and add to it. But it's always just a basic repetitive movement. Uh, and to me, it was just, that's the thing I remember most of many years uh, of being a student at that. Um, right, well, the, I just like to say about that repetitive movement is that I like to say this all the time, is confidence is creatable through repetition. Like it's not the confidence fairy. You don't have to wait for the confidence fairy to come bonk you on the head. You can build that stuff, you know? And that's one of my favorite things to have happen in music. Like in that open mic or the talent show we just did, they owned those songs at the end because they learned how to memorize them and they learned, they had the opportunity to try them out a bunch of times in, in like a dress rehearsal form, you know? And they learned how to create success for themselves and that it took a lot longer than they thought it was going to. They thought they were going to have it in two weeks. I knew they weren't. Um, but that was an important lesson, right? This is going to, I can do this, but it takes longer. So having realistic expectations is a, is a gift of the process. And the idea at the end of it, you can generalize the success. You were able to do this through hard work. Now, what you have in front of you is going to be hard work, but you know you can do it because you've shown that you can here. Yeah, and we did a whole integration. We did a whole integration group afterwards. What did you learn in this and how can you apply it to your recovery? Um, looking forward, you and I will be discussing the uh, the impact of creating music on the recovery process with some specific examples of what you have helped uh, develop through your work. And my last question for this episode being more about listening for you is, is there a singular piece of music that has been impactful on your life? Well, you know, I'm going to say two. Uh, don't hate me, but when I was 13... I was with a friend at some resort somewhere and I know exactly where I was standing. It was a cover band called Asylum. It was at the Lake Placid Inn or something like that in the Adirondacks. And this band played Suffragette City and they played China Grove and it rang a bell inside of me. Like I still know exactly where I was like in the room at that time. And those two songs, like still, like it just, like I was already playing guitar and music was already part of my life, but those two songs just really, they helped me recognize myself maybe. I've never said it out loud like that. I was like, this is important and this matters to me. And, um, and still to this day, those two songs. 
I just, I, you know, I like to ask uh, questions like that because I think it's interesting. It gets people back, you know, in their own heads and what's going on. I can tell you the most impactful piece of music for me is a terrible memory. It's um, a, a 60s or 70s song, Smile a Little Smile for Me, Rosemary. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. That used to m- make me cry something fierce. And growing up with three older sisters, what did they do? They played that 45 over and over again to abuse their little brother, which is what older siblings do. And to this day, I still tease one of my sisters um, about that song. She makes a joke if she ever hears it. But it's one of those things I'll never forget. And it's funny now. It wasn't at the time. Um but I, it's, you know, I'll always remember those days. Uh, knowing that we just scratched the surface of all great things, music and recovery related, any final thoughts that you'd like to add for today? I just like, you know, I know that your audience is mostly clinicians and I want to say to clinicians that, you know, um, there's lots of small, simple ways to do this. And if you're a clinician who's also a musician, you know, we're going to be talking in the next episode because I know people feel already overwhelmed. They have too much paperwork. They have big caseloads. They're stressed. Um, I want to say, like, there's a lot of simple, doable ways um, to start to add elements of this in there. You know, even if it's just like one client that you know that that client is like a real music lover and like looking for some ways. And we'll be giving some specific tools next time. Um, Because again, our vision is that evidence-based clinically integrated music programming will become standard part of addiction treatment because it works. Thanks for that, Kathy. I appreciate your time today. And and that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. Again, I'd like to thank Kathy for joining us. And I look forward to talking to her more with our next episode. And in that episode, we're going to talk more about some of the specific work uh, that Kathy has done and also hear some of the music that was created through her work with with individuals. Uh, We extend our gratitude to Mountainside once again for their generous support. And we here at the Connecticut Certification Board, we appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time 